best friends in the whole wide world, a guy named Jake Berry. He's getting married. Jake Berry! Uh, he was like, I'm a weirdo, so I want to go hiking for my bachelor party. Yeah. That was lame. Yeah. Awesome. Like, yeah, just what I want to do is trip over rocks for a weekend. Um, and then after that, I had to go to uh, Conway, Arkansas. Yeah! Uh, have you ever been to Conway, Arkansas? No. Yeah. Like Brad? It's a terrible place. Don't go there. Every year of my life. <laughs> don't, don't go there. Brad, Brad thinks it's cool because Brad has low standards. Uh, yeah! <laughs> you know I do. <laughs> uh, I had a, a big fun Kyle for conferencing, and, and that was a good time. But I missed y'all. And uh, yeah. I prayed for y'all every Thursday. And the Lord moved. It was really cool, huh? Yeah. Yeah, like last week was really good. Yeah. Like I listened to that sermon and, and I was like, maybe I not, I ought not to preach. Maybe <laughs> Pam should just preach again. Let's go, Pam. Um, yeah, Pam. Because that was that was really good. she did a great job, um, and and that is why we are so blessed to have Pamela Garza Woo! here with us. Amen. Not only is she amazing, but she also gave us Gabriel and Jonathan was there too. I think. Yeah, um, Gabriel. But uh, what she talked about was. Was overcoming injustice, right? Like yeah. the the way to deal with injustice in the world, and that was like that's always one of the hardest things for me to deal with, you know, because I'm one of those. It's like I will make it right, you know what I mean? So that was a good check for my for my soul. Um, but uh, I wanted to kind of build on that, yeah. right? Yeah. We're going to talk about holiness tonight. Ooh, right? Uh, yeah. This is not a fun topic. People don't really talk about it much. We usually talk about like I don't know behavioral modification Oof. or. Some kind of Christianized pop psychology. You know what I mean? Where it's just like, hey, we should feel good about ourselves. Sometimes you shouldn't. I'm just going to say it, okay? Um, but first I want to kind of define some things uh, and, and talk about the issue. And then we'll proceed on to the solution after that. But before we jump in, before we jump in, uh, this Saturday is a very, very important day. The Saturday is March 4th, which is... My wife and I's 17th wedding anniversary. And uh, I told her that I'd talk about it. Um, and so I'm talking about it right now. Here's what I want y'all to know, right? Is some of y'all like have watched too much TV in your life, or, or maybe you've watched, unfortunately, your parents' marriages, and you may think, like, hey, marriage sounds like it's a hard, scary thing. It's not. It's freaking awesome. Yeah. Right? I've, had, I've been married to this one for 17 years, and she has yet to try and smother me with a pillow in my sleep. Hey. That's how great it is. <laughs> Praise God, right? Yeah. She's amazing, and we're having a blast. Yeah. And I can't wait for another 17 years. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So all you Four suckers, kids. y'all get married one day, maybe. And <laughs> it'll be really good. No, Jesus will call some of y'all to be single, hey. and it'll be good, too. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Roy? <laughs> Whoa. Oh, no, no. Whoa. I'm kidding, man. I love <laughs> Ladies, you should chat them up. Anyway, um, so we're going to talk about some problems a little first. Like Pam talked about injustice, and, and she touched on it a little bit on why injustice exists, right? Yeah. And uh, this the the idea is kind of in the same vein as like one of my favorite G.K. Chesterton quotes, Ooh. right? G.K. Yeah, yeah. Chesterton, Gilbert Keith Chesterton, yeah, the literary auteur of the late. Uh, 19th century, yeah. right? Just brilliant dude. Uh, responding to a publication, like a, a newspaper, that said, what is wrong with the world? Yeah. And, and they wanted responses, and people writing in these huge articles <laughs> and stuff. Gilbert Keith Chesterton, he responded with this. Dear sir, in response to your question, <laughs> what is wrong with the world? I am. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. Woo! 
right? He understood some things. Yeah. He understood that we're the problem. Yeah. Yeah. Right? The problem is not some societal, <laughs> conditional, environmental thing. The problem's us. Yeah. yeah. You know, society's made up of us's. You know, <laughs> it's it's us. We're the problem. So what causes injustice? I do. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. I do. Yeah. But how? How? Well, usually it's when I think, when I fight for things that I think are right. Huh. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 Human history is just story after story of people yeah. trying to quote unquote set things right, yeah. but making a bigger mess because their right wasn't actually right. Yeah. And I want to tell you the story of one of those people <laughs> to help kind of frame this whole thing. Okay. Yeah. You ready? This this guy's life encapsulates. Everything that I'm trying to say tonight. So if you don't hear anything else, just pay attention to the story. This is Thomas Midgley Jr., one of the greatest killers in human history. He was a humble chemist from, I think, Ohio, right? I don't know. So have you ever have you ever looked at a car and seen like either on the gas cap or like uh, on the fuel gauge where it says unleaded fuel only. Yeah. Have you ever seen that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's there because of him. Oh. Have you ever used like a, a spray can, like yeah. hairspray or something like that, and it has Graffiti. a bold print. It says no CFCs. Yeah. Have you ever seen that? Yeah. Well, next time you grab and look at it, any aerosol can will say that. No CFCs. That's because of him. <laughs> uh, Thomas Mitchley Jr. May, have well, may well be the most dangerous man in human history. Whoa. So... What he, he was a chemist, and, and he uh, got hired by the DuPont Chemical Company. Oh, and what he wanted to do was try and increase the inf- efficiency of combustion engines. Yeah. yeah. Right? That's good. And so he experimented with various compounds, because he's thinking, if I can make these things more efficient, uh, make the engine run better, then we'll get higher fuel efficiency, people's yeah. lives will improve. That's good. He's trying to do the right thing. Yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah. And through a lot of various trial and error... Okay. Y'all can look him up online if you really want to. He discovered that adding a small amount of tetraethyl lead to gasoline made engines stop knocking and made them almost doubly as efficient as they were previously. Let's go. Right? Yeah. Well, this became known as leaded gasoline. Yeah. Leaded gasoline, right? And, and maybe your, your parents or your grandparents had leaded gasoline. That's what they put in their cars. It made cars... Awesome. Let's go. Right? Uh, have you ever been driven down the interstate, driving down the interstate, or like you're getting on an on-ramp? It has a really short on-ramp. Yeah. That was built when they had leaded gasoline, and cars could get uh, up and go like that. Right? Now crazy. we have like I don't know ethanol or whatever. It was basically a hamster just freaking out. You know? Yeah. Come on, go! You know? Well, this dude invented leaded gasoline, yeah. right? And it became wildly, fantastically popular and wildly used. Right? Mitchell won awards, he was like recognized as like this genius, and he made a heck of a lot of money. Some estimates are around three billion dollars in profit. Let's go. Right? He had the whole thing patented. But when he was given the Nichols Award, which is the highest award for a chemist in America, they invited him to go on a speaking tour and he turned it down. And they're like, oh, look at him, he's so humble. <laughs> no, he turned it down because he was secretly suffering from lead poisoning. And he couldn't breathe. Oh. Because to the surprise of absolutely no one, (laughs) burning off leaded gasoline and releasing massive amounts of lead into the air is not good. (laughs) Right? 
This is why, like, this is why when you move into a, a rent house, they'll have you sign something that's like, "Hey, this may have lead paint, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because it's very bad." <laughs> what lead does is it has a similar like outer electron shell as calcium. And so it literally will replace the calcium in your bones, and you just can't get it out of your body at that point. And it just like leaches into your system and slowly poisons you to death. You can look. They, so I can't remember the scientists that did it, but somebody did a study on like on like the lead content of humanity before Midgley and after, and the difference is one thousand times. He increased the amount of lead in the pop human global population by an average of 1,000 times. He has been blamed for a myriad of health issues because of the increase in lead. And also, lately, what, what they've discovered in the last decade or so is that there was a marked and noticed intellectual decline in the children that were born during the age of lead and gasoline. Yep. Yeah. This also coincides with an increase in violent behavior among young people. He made people stupider and angrier. Not only are they lead poisoned, but they're also dumb and mad. How many deaths does stupid and angry lead to? Right? So... In the 60s, like, hey, Mitchley, not a good idea. Man, that was not great. And he was like, well, I tried my best. <laughs> so then they're like, hey, Mitchley, you want to try something else? And he's like, sure. <laughs> so they put, DuPont Company puts Mitchley on the issue of trying to solve refrigerants in the late 1920s. Okay? Refrigerants. Okay, how many of you love air conditioning? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, when my buddy Jake was like, let's go camping in tents and stuff, I was like, no. <laughs> no. Do you know how long my ancestors fought for climate control? Like, my great-grandfather would have shot you in the foot to be able to sleep in an air-conditioned room. I owe it to them. I'm not doing it, so I didn't. I stayed in a stupid double-wide trailer. It was horrible. But anyway, Midgley was put on the task of, of creating a new chemical compound that could be used as a refrigerant. Right? Most chemicals that were used as refrigerants at the time were either expensive, toxic, or explosive. Uh, Can you imagine kicking on your AC and it just blows up? Uh, hey, baby, it's a little warm in the car. You want to turn? <laughs> Bam! Uh, right? Uh, All right. So he wanted to find something that was cheap, efficient, and stable. He's trying to do the right thing. He's trying to improve humanity. God bless this man. So in the late 1920s, he discovered chlorofluorocarbons. So a chain of fluorocarbons with chlorine attached to it, which we now know as CFCs. But it's also known by its common commercial name, Freon. Yeah. Right? If you spill Freon, you have to like report it to the EPA. You know what I mean? They're like, they don't just give that out because it's dangerous. The, the thing was, CFCs um, were stable, they're cheap, they're efficient, they worked amazingly well. And, and they still do. In fact, most of your cars probably have Freon in the AC uh, in the compressors and stuff, right? Right. But our brilliant friend Midgley yeah. discovered another alternative use for CFCs. They make great propellants in aerosol canisters and asthma inhalers. Aww. Up until the late 80s, people were 
Hosing, do you remember the 80s? Y'all don't remember the 80s. But the 80s were all about big hair, right? You yeah. tease your hair out, and like, it was like, you know, like women, especially in Texas, would add like three inches of height just by teasing their bangs with hairspray, right? Yeah. Like people are bathing in this stuff, right? Or a kid that has breathing problems just like, I'm going to take in these horrible chemicals. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's because Mitchley was just trying to help. What we later found out in the 90s, is that CFCs, what they do is they drift up into the upper atmosphere yeah. where they destabilize this molecule called ozone, <laughs> which is the greatest protectant for us against space and solar radiation. Yeah. The CFCs have consequently ripped a hole in the ozone layer the size of Antarctica, Whoa. right? With Australians, like, living down there, are they're completely exposed. They don't have an ozone layer over them because of all the CFCs that were released into the air. Uh, and their cancer rate is double and triple that of the rest of the human population. Uh, all because of Mitch Lee. Yeah. Sweet summer child, <laughs> Mitch Lee. Trying to do what's right in his own eyes. Trying to improve the human population, Midgley. Later in life, Midgley caught polio, which is tragic, right? And eventually he needed help to get in and out of bed. So he constructed a complicated system of ropes and pulleys for himself to get in and out of bed. And if you've been paying attention at all during this story, you will know what's going to happen next. He died of strangulation by getting caught in his own contraption. It's a very dark tale, but also kind of funny. It's kind of like, Sydney's trying so hard not to laugh right now. Jonathan thinks it's the funniest thing he's ever heard. Midgley serves as the most accurate, if not disturbing, example of the biblical truth we're going to look at today. We don't know what we're doing, but we like to act like we do. We don't know what we're doing, but we like to act like we do. See, one of the major subplots of the Bible is that mankind is trying to do things that they think are correct, but yeah. instead they're just making things even more awful. Yeah. And there's example after example in the Bible. Abraham and Sarah. Well, they can't have a kid, and God's promised them a kid, so we're going to do what's right. We're going to... I'll give my maidservant Hagar to my husband, right? And then they have a kid, Ishmael, and that leads to all kinds of conflict. Yeah. Ezra and Nehemiah. Hey, we want to restore Israel to, to its proper place in the world and rebuild the temple and, and purify our culture. Oh, by the way, the way we're going to do that is by beating the ever-loving stuffing out of people in the streets, yeah. breaking up families, and driving people away. Or how about Caiaphas, the high priest, who looking at Jesus said it's better for one man to die than a whole nation to suffer. He was trying to do the right thing, but making things a lot worse. If you have your Bibles, uh, why don't you flip open to 1 Peter, and if not, we'll have it on the back of the screen. 1 Peter uh, 15 to 16, and while you're looking for that, I'll pray Dear Jesus, we need you to speak to us tonight. Lord, our ears are open, our hearts are open for your truth and your reality. Lord, we know that you can speak and we know that you want to speak. 
and give you the right and the authority to speak to us. Yeah. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, what is the solution to this problem? It's right here. And as we go on, it'll become clear why this is the answer. Yeah. As Peter, he's running to the church and he says, But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. Be holy because I am holy. Yeah. So you may be asking yourself, Scroggins, what does holiness have to do with not causing bigger messes in life? Well, uh, to answer that question, we got to get started on the back end of the problem, right? Right where all the problem started, which is, you know, for some of you that have been around a long time, you're going to have PTSD, but we got to go back to the Garden of Eden, okay? <laughs> Genesis chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, the serpent speaks and he says, For God knows that when you eat from it, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And then the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. See, if you, if you sit and you just think about what happened here, Adam and Eve did what was right in their own eyes. Yeah. Yeah. They saw that the tree was good for food. It was good, it was good food. It was good eating. It was beautiful. It was pleasing to the eye. And not only that, it also made them wise. So they did what was right in their own eyes. And this is like a common refrain if you ever have read through the Bible and got to the book of Judges, which is like the darkest book in the Bible. The common refrain is everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's the end game after eating the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And depending on how you read the story of Adam and Eve, you can debate whether or not they were intentionally evil in this moment. But what you cannot debate is that they were foolish. Yeah. They were incredibly foolish. Yeah. Adam and Eve lacked the wisdom necessary to see what they were really doing. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about that word wisdom. There's a difference between intelligence and wisdom. Yeah. There's a difference between stupid and foolish. Those are the negatives, right? Yeah. Like, for instance, I know a lot of Bible and history stuff, which is great. But when it comes like to actually living my life, yeah. if my wife isn't there, I'm pretty much a useless human being. <laughs> because for all my knowledge that I have, I don't know how to apply it. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So wisdom is the application of knowledge. Yeah, that's good. Like my grandpa always told me, he says, intelligence is knowing a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is not putting it in fruit salad. Yeah. Catch that? Yeah. yeah. It's funny. It's okay. It's my grandpa's joke. <laughs> so having knowledge of something is good, but even more important, is how you apply that knowledge. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Do you have knowledge of it? And do you apply that knowledge in the best way possible? Yeah. yeah. The pursuit of wisdom is one of the most important pursuits in the entire Bible. You see it right there in Genesis. Is the way the temptation was laid yeah. out that it was desirable for gaining wisdom. Yeah. 
So one of the, the earliest desires of the heart of Adam and Eve was to gain wisdom. In fact, we have like, we have three whole books in the Bible that we call yeah. wisdom literature. Yeah. It's all about gaining wisdom. Yeah. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. Those, that's the three wisdom literature books. Yeah. Does that make sense? So what we see is that the Bible essentially assumes that you will gain knowledge of life and how the world works. But what the Bible aims to do is instruct you on how to use that knowledge. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. It's how to gain wisdom. And when we look at Jesus, we see him as our ultimate source of wisdom. Yeah. See, Jesus did not only have like knowledge of life and how the world worked, but he also applied it in the best way possible. Yeah. So how was he able to do this? Well, he's God. And he has perspective that we don't. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's that perspective that helps him apply the knowledge. Like if we could, I bet you all of us at this point would go back in time and talk to Thomas Mitchley Jr. And just be like, stop. No. It's a bad idea. You know, any time he tries to invent something, uh, it's not worth the risk. If somebody slap his hand, like, go be a farmer, you know? Because that would prevent him from making some really big mistakes that he didn't anticipate. Yeah. He thought he was doing something right. Yeah. But God has the perspective of eternity. Yeah. And therefore, his wisdom is infinite and beautiful. Yeah. That's why we say... God's laws are a description of reality from an infinite perspective. Yeah. 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 That's where the saying comes from. Yeah. He has perfect knowledge of how the cosmos is supposed to work, but he also has the infinite perspective on how it best works. Yeah. yeah. It's cool. Another observation we can make from the garden to help us understand the problem here is that when it says... Woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom. See, Adam and Eve made a choice that was pleasing to them. Not only were they foolish, but they're also selfish. Yeah. Mitchley, even when he was doing the experimenting, got lead poisoning. He had to spend a year in Miami recovering so that his lungs could heal. When they started producing leaded gasoline, within the first few months, 12 people died from lead poisoning. He knew his invention was dangerous, but he also knew it would make him fabulously wealthy. And that idea pleased him. And I bet you he justified his decision by thinking about how much he would help the general population. Sure, a couple people might get sick, but how much more people would be helped? And also, you know, he made the modern-day equivalent of $3 billion. The stark reality is that we're all just like Adam and Eve. We're selfish. No matter how hard we try, selfishness colors all of our actions. And selfishness is really, really short-sighted. Think of like Esau giving up his birthright to his brother... Because he was hungry. Yeah. He couldn't wait the 30 minutes it would take to cook a meal. 
He wanted it now. That selfishness was short-sighted. Yeah. Yeah. Adam and Eve, they were pleased to take the fruit because they wanted to gain wisdom now. Yeah. They were short-sighted. And this stands in contrast to God, who is wholly unselfish. And we know this is true, not only by all of the stories in the Bible, <laughs> but also when we examine Jesus' life, we see that he came into the world having left behind perfect love and unity with his Father. Yeah. And then he went through life just the same as us. Think of like the, the hurt feelings from when your friends didn't play with you when you're growing up. You know, you're, you're playing tag, you trip and fall and skin your knees. The lost loved ones, the uncles, the grandparents, in Jesus' case, his father, passing away. He experienced all of these things. He went from perfect heaven yeah. to down here in the dirt with us. He went through, the life, went through life just the same as us, all to die a horrible death so that we could be with him again. That's selfless. He is holy and totally unselfish. So we say love is an unselfish choice for the highest good of another. Yeah. Love is an unselfish choice for the highest good of another. Yeah. Have you heard that before? Have you heard us say that? Yeah. I would hope so. In order to really love like Jesus loves... You must be willing to submit and subordinate your needs or desires below those of others. Yeah. Yeah. That is why I think the, old, the New Testament writers picked the particular Greek word for love that they picked. Because it means a love of prizing or a love of valuing. Yeah. Yeah. It values others above itself. It submits its desires for the sake of the other. And it, it is this unselfishness and submission that is, the dis, that is distinctive of the love that God loves us with. It's even how he defines himself. Yeah. In First John, John writes, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. He defines himself by this unselfish choosing for your highest good. Yeah, yeah. He's so radically other than us. But we, we're not, right? This isn't who we are. We cause injustice and wrong in the world yeah. because we make bad choices. Because one, we lack the wisdom to see the full impact of what we choose. Two, we lack the ability to choose free of the influence of self. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, in a word, we're foolish and selfish. Yeah. You know, and at this point, you're probably thinking, great sermon, Scroggins. I'm a stupid jerk. That ruins everything. Awesome. I'm going to need to go buy, like, I don't know, a therapy cat and take a mental health break for a week, right? Is that a thing? And, and, yeah, sure, that may be valid. Maybe some of you do feel worse at this point in the sermon. But that's, that's only because you don't want to die to your right to be right. You still think, 
you know what's best. And you don't. You don't have the perspective. And you're too selfish. One of my heroes, Winky Pratney, was preaching uh, at a university one time. And uh, he was talking about why Jesus is God. And he said that this one student stood up in the middle of it. And he's like, why does Jesus have to be God? Why not somebody else? And Winky says, well, you know, like, I'm open to alternatives. So who would you say? And the kid says, well, why not me? And he's like, because you're not smart enough and you're not good enough. Sit down. (laughs) It's true. Yeah. None of us would stand up and say, hey, I should be God. We all kind of act like it, don't we? The way we define right and wrong for ourselves. The way we do what is right in our own eyes. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy. Because I am holy. What does holiness have to do with this? Well, God's great mission is to bring us from the state of sinfulness to holiness. To bring us from the selfish and foolish creatures into wise and loving sons and daughters. Proverbs 3 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your paths straight. When we surrender our knowledge and understanding to God's, he makes our paths straight. When we surrender our knowledge and understanding to God's, he makes our paths straight. See, some people I've heard interpret this as some kind of like prosperity thing. Right, if you if you bend the knee in the right way, or or if you are ignorant in some ways of some things, like I don't know, it's God's mysterious plan, right? That that he'll he'll make your path straight, as in make them smooth and easy. And while that might be true, I don't think it actually is. If it is true, it's only as a byproduct of walking in accordance with reality. Yeah. Yeah. But here's something you might have missed: is that the third most prominent word in Hebrew for sin is a word that means to be crooked or bent. Avon, if you want to look it up. To be crooked or bent. So as we trust God and lean not on our own understanding, as we submit to Him, He makes us holy. Yeah. He straightens out what was crooked. Yeah. Yeah. Do you see that? He restores you to how you should be. See, love requires submission. You need to submit the needs or desires of the self to the needs or desires of others. Essential for true biblical love. And true wisdom also requires deeper understanding than we have. We don't have the perspective. We're just finite little dirt creatures. And when you combine these two actions, when you combine true love with true wisdom, you have a person that has surrendered the right to do what they see fit. You have a holy person. Yeah. Uh, our friend Winky Practice says, holiness is wisdom and love in correct proportion. 
Holiness is wisdom yeah. and love in correct proportion. Yeah. The desire of God is for us to be holy. And the great need of our time is for us to be holy. Yeah. And this can only be done through surrender. Yeah. You have to give up your rights. Yeah. You have to die to the right to live how you want to live. Because you are not smart enough and you are not good enough. Yeah. Yeah. You while trying your best and having the purest of intentions, will be like Thomas Mitchley and become an incredibly dangerous person. Yeah. So you must surrender in the areas of wisdom and love. We must allow God's definitions of right and wrong to dictate our reality. The truth is, is that he can see and understand things to an infinite degree, and we are limited in our capacity to do so. He is the author and engineer of reality, and he knows how it should work. So we must submit ourselves to the faithful and loving trust of what he says. Yeah, that's right. And sometimes, here's the hard part. It's that the lines that the Bible draws, the lines of the laws of God conflict with what our society or maybe even our hearts tell us is good or bad. Yeah. But we must be holy. We must surrender our limited love and our small wisdom for God's unlimited love and great wisdom. Because here's the deal. The Bible is not just ancient wisdom on right and wrong but heavenly, eternal definitions of reality. Yeah. That's cool. We must allow the way that God values others to become the way that we value others. Yeah. God loved and valued us so much that he gave up what was best for himself for what was best for us. Yeah. Yeah. He picked up his cross and went to his death. We must allow God's definitions of right and wrong to inform our choices and our actions. We must choose without regard for ourselves, but with regard for God and his children. Yeah. Yeah. And this is not easy. This is a level of surrender that even Adam and Eve, who saw God face to face, uh, failed in. Yeah. But when we walk out this deep level of surrender, that which is crooked is made straight. Yeah. In, in the circles that I run in sometimes in preacher land, right, which is not a place I recommend you go often, <laughs> the refrain I hear the most is that there's some kind of conflict between the church and society. But I don't believe that's the case. If you just read a little further in First Peter, it talks about living as exiles, living as foreigners in a foreign land. That's not in conflict. And so we, we are foolish, and we look around us and we think, look at, look at what society's becoming. Yeah. We don't think of what we could become. As E. Stanley Jones says, he says this, the early Christians did not say in dismay, 
Look what the world has come to. What a delight. Look what has come to the world. It's yeah. yeah. good. If we but surrender. Yeah. Yeah. So the worship team can come back up. I want to encourage some of you. Right? I've talked a lot about surrender. And that may be a little bit like esoteric, right? It's kind of like, okay, that's a concept. But how do I actually surrender? Well, I think all of you, if you're struggling through this, you know that there's something in your life you're doing that you ought not to be doing. You know that you're, you know that you're making choices that are less intelligent. Yeah. Right? But either it's pleasing to you, or you get some kind of social approval, and your motivation for it is selfish. Limited wisdom and limited love. But to be holy, as we've seen, it's less about what you do, and more about a surrender and a cessation of doing. Just stop doing those things. Give up your right for it. Instead of sitting there and justifying going out to the club or drinking and partying or whatever, maybe maybe you just accept what God says is actual truth. That's a really dumb decision. Because you know it is. And some of you, like you're like me, and you really want to be right all the time. And for us people like that, we just need to stop striving to know what we're supposed to do all the time, right? Yeah. We just need to surrender to the love and wisdom of God. The path to holiness is about surrender. It's about a cessation of doing what you're doing and a trust in who God is. So we're going to have some altar time because this is Kai Alpha and this is what we're about, right? Those kids up in Asbury, they got it from us. Just kidding. I think there's some stuff, I think some of us, I'll say it this way, have in our hearts like that that deep-seated fear to let go of what we think is right. We have plans, we have thoughts, we have pleasures, things that we really love and enjoy. But we know it's not good. Don't be a Thomas Mitchley. While your intentions may be good, if it's not God's definitions of reality, with God's motivations of selflessness, it's going to make things worse. So will you be will you be holy? Will you surrender? Whatever that thing is, I challenge you at some point to come to the front, get on your knees, and make a promise to Jesus, and ask Him to help you maintain the lines that He drew, not the lines that you drew. And then when you go back to your seat, tell your small group, "Don't be a coward." 
Because it's really easy to hide in a prayer, isn't it? But that's the point of the whole small group thing, is to invite people into your life. Yeah? Yeah. If you haven't done that, you're doing it wrong. And if this is your first night here, I'm really sorry. (laughs) Super tense. Yeah? Yeah. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. Jesus, you you just got to be king. There's no two bones about it. You just have to be king. You just have to rule. You just have to be the one that that dictates the rights and wrongs and the ins and outs of of life. Lord, we're not good at it. We're just not. We, We will either make a mess of our life or make the mess... Make a mess of the lives of others. But Father, in your kindness, your generosity, Lord, you've sent your Holy Spirit. And it's your Spirit that can help us fully surrender to your wisdom and love. And it is by your power, your strength, your spirit, that our crooked little lives can be made sure. Father, will you help us? Will you help us? Lord, I pray that every student that comes forward to the altar and kneels before you will not leave empty-handed. Lord, I pray that they would feel your presence or hear a word. That they would know that you met them there.